Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Last session, Bobby was just saying, is there any meat left on the bone for you? I said, maybe not, but we'll get in the marrow. Get some of the marrow out of that bone. I've been assigned the topic of the beauty of conversion. To many, of course, the, the Christian doctrine of conversion appears anything but beautiful. Some will see it as coercive. No one's going to force their beliefs on me. Or it's offensive. Who are you to say that what I already believe is, is wrong? Who are you to say that I'm a sinner? That, that I uh, am actually owed wrath for the way that I live and for who I am? In those senses, of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The most important thing, of course, about any doctrine is, is not whether it's ugly or beautiful, but whether it's true or false, biblical or unbiblical. Acknowledging that, however, I think we can still say that the true doctrine of Christian conversion is really beautiful, just flat out gorgeous, actually. On one level, conversion is beautiful in the same way that all kinds of transformations are Beautiful, right? So in elementary school, children study the metamorphosis of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly or a tadpole becoming a frog. In Sunday school, children are learning how these transformations illustrate the change in a human heart from being dead in sin to a, a new creation. A flower blooms, an, an egg hatches, a baby bird spreads its wings for the first time, and each of these transformations is, is beautiful in its own way, but they're also beautiful in the same way. And in, in all of these nooks and crannies of creation, God has kind of hardwired the revelation of his glory, which is um, brought to bear in the changing of spiritual death to eternal life. They're just little common grace signposts for us. One of the laws of the natural world is that things left to themselves don't progress, but regress. Everything dies. It is wearing down. But in this very realm, God has encoded here and there little portraits of beauty, little evidences of change to something better. And all of those are merely ultimately pointing to the wonder of salvation, now, in fact, conversion is much bigger than each of these little portraits. It's, it's beautiful in its simplicity. Think about uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It's also beautiful in its complexity. Think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But it's not enough to simply say that salvation is beautiful. We need to hold it up, actually, and, and, and see it, see the beauty. So that's what I want to do this morning. As we take a walk through Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to be drawing from um, verses 22 to, th to 38. I'm sure that, that most, if not all of you agree with me that the doctrine of salvation is beautiful, but I still want us to kind of hold it up together and consider its multiple facets and maybe walk out of here having seen a glimpse of its beauty. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says. <clears throat> it is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. 
I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it plentiful and I will not bring famine on you. I will also make the fruit of the trees and the produce of the field plentiful so that you will no longer experience reproach among the nations on account of famine. You will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and detestable practices. It is not for your sake that I will act. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Let this be known to you. Be ashamed and humiliated because of your ways, house of Israel. This is what the Lord God says. On the day I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were once ruined, desolate, and demolished are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that remain around you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was demolished and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. This is what the Lord God says. I will respond to the house of Israel and do this for them. I will multiply them in number like a flock, so the ruined cities will be filled with a flock of people, just as Jerusalem is filled with a flock of sheep for sacrifice during its appointed festivals. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would bless this time we have together. Help us to see some glimpse of the glory of your Son that we might be changed by it. And it's in your Son's name we pray, the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Ezekiel, the young priest turned prophet, captured, carried out of Jerusalem. He's grieving the sudden loss of his wife. He is staggering over a succession of overwhelming visions. He is riding from Babylonian exile to a Hebrew people who are waiting for vindication. This is a big and complex book. It's a companion volume of sorts to Jeremiah's prophecy. And like Jeremiah, this book is building in escalating foretellings of God's actions in judgment and mercy. And this particular prophecy in chapter 36 is itself sort of a, a theological preface to the prophetic vision of spiritual revival, what we see, um, the resurrection of the nation in the next chapter, chapter 37, the famous vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And like in that passage, Ezekiel 36 is pointing beyond its immediate implications. Ezekiel 36 might have a kind of near fulfillment of, of this prophecy in mind, but like substantial portions of Ezekiel altogether, it is really forthrightly eschatological. 
It's, it's pointing into the future. The hope being held out here for the exiles is not just a circumstantial improvement, but a heavenly invasion. The benefit to the faithful then and to the faithful now is the same. God will sovereignly restore the fortunes of his people through the great gift of grace. And so this text is, is generally understood by commentators as a, a referent to the forthcoming new covenant, forthcoming from the time of Ezekiel. It was foretold um, in even earlier promises, like in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> even if your exiles are at the farthest horizon, he will gather you and bring you back from there. The Lord your God will bring you into the land your ancestors possessed, and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your ancestors. The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. The promise of that Old Testament passage, just like the promise of this Old Testament passage, is about a spirit-wrought salvation. And this is a beautiful thing. So what do we see about the beauty of conversion from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 38? We see, first of all, conversion is beautiful in its working. Conversion is beautiful in its working. The work of conversion is beautiful precisely because it's our glorious God who works it. He is the one who is at work in it. It is beautiful because it is an act of unilateral, effectual grace. Verse 22, this is what the Lord God says. It's not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my holy name. Who is the one acting? It is God. Verse 23, God says, I will demonstrate Verse 24, I will take you and I will bring. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water. I will cleanse. Verse 26, I will give and I will remove. Verse 27, I will place and I will cause. Verse 29, I will save. I will summon. Verse 30, I will make. Verse 36, I have rebuilt. I have spoken. Verse 37, I will respond, I will multiply. Verse 38, I am the Lord. It's God's act. It's God's act. Salvation is all of grace so that God would get all of the glory. Notice the passivity in this passage. The only things that those who are not God are doing in this text, verse 31, is loathing their unholiness and remembering who they are apart from God. Just as in Ephesians chapter 2, the picture that is cast of our fallen state is, it is dire and it is insurmountable. We are dead, Paul says, in effect. We are Satan worshipers, he says, in effect. We are enslaved to our flesh, he says. We're children of wrath. This is who we are apart from God. Not people who need a leg up. Not people who need some practical steps. Not people who could stand to use a little pep talk. 
We are dead and in bondage to sin, unable to save ourselves. Romans 3.11, there's no one who seeks God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Apart from God, we are dead in our trespasses, walking according to the ways of the world, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh. By nature, children of wrath. What, what hope do we have? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. The only thing we bring to the salvation equation is our sin. We contribute nothing but our need. And in fact, if, if you bring an ounce of works to the bargaining table of salvation, the deal's off completely. You cheapen the whole thing. Salvation is all of grace. It's, it's, it's all of grace or it's not salvation. I mean, we, we do try to get it or, or even just think of it in other ways. We parade our righteousness before others. We pursue self-made spirituality. We swagger in our ambitions and our accomplishments. We take pride in our platforms. But self-salvation is ugly. Self-made spirituality is, is ugly. It seeks to honor and glorify the self. But we don't have any glory naturally in and of ourselves. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But conversion is a beautiful thing because the God of glory then brings his glory to bear and he raises the dead to new life and he grants to sinners the new birth. He puts a new spirit in them. Self-righteousness is gross. But God-wrought salvation is glorious because it honors, verse 22, his holy name, not ours. And this is the connection between sola gratia grace alone, and soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. The biblical doctrine of grace alone, conversion, is beautiful because it makes much of our beautiful God. Conversion is beautiful in its working because it is the beautiful God who is working in it. Secondly, conversion is beautiful in its design. Conversion is beautiful in its Design. There is, there is a defining moment of conversion. It may look different or be expressed differently on the outward perspective. But it's the same for each of us who have been converted. There is a moment that we don't savingly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that God has raised him from the dead. And then there is a moment that we do. There is a decisive turning point. There is a hinge and that initial decision to believe, to, to lay hold of Christ, to ask him into your heart, whatever language you're using, to, to grab hold of Christ with the empty hand of faith, is the moment that a predestined sinner who's just minding his own business gets all tangled up in the ordo salutis. 
God intervenes. God's crosshairs were on us from eternity past. But now the effectual call has come. The appointed time has come. And conversion is in, in, in some sense both the fruition of God's plan and just one point along its route. It's a, it's a decisive moment, but there's so much deliberation behind that moment. We see the outline of this deliberation Divine deliberation in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What our eyes can see is this. We can see people repenting and professing their faith in Christ. But what our eyes cannot see, at least not yet, what our eyes cannot see in the moment of conversion is the eternal weight of glory that is leading up to this decisive moment and flowing out after it. What happens in conversion must be spiritually discerned. And when you have the spiritual eyes to see it, you see that it is beautiful. It is glorious. All points of its design are beautifully wrought by the Spirit. Look at verses 25 through 27. This is the picture that, is, that uh, is delivered to Ezekiel about this moment. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and all of your idols. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'm going to take out that heart of stone. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. One that's, that actually beats with real blood. I'll place my spirit within you, verse 27, and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Here's the decisive moment. God places his spirit within a sinner. And he gives them a new heart. And the result is a spiritual beautification. The baptism in the spirit that happens at conversion where we're washed clean, we're cleansed, as it were, by the very blood of Jesus. The vision is one of newness, of freshness. The result of conversion is not simply a new outlook on life. It's, it's not even simply a, a, a new religion embraced. It's being a new person. It's being a new person. I recently watched... Um, a television series called The Good Place. Binged all four seasons. I'm not proud of that, but uh, it made for some good illustrative material. Uh, the Good Place, of course, from the, 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 the cleverest, smartest, best minds that the pagans can offer us, posits the af an afterlife which would be, is to the extent that is sort of common among pagans. There's a good place, and there's a bad place, what you and I would say is a heaven and a hell. And the moral calculus of the world of the sitcom, The Good Place, is, is the same moral calculus they found outside of Christianity in any you know, pagan belief system that believes there's some kind of afterlife. Essentially, your good has to outweigh your bad. In the television show, there's a point system. So every good deed that someone does on earth earns them points, every bad deed subtracts from your points. So if you die and you're, and, you, and you're in the positive, you get to go to the good place. If you're in the negative, you have to go to the bad place. And it's a really interesting show because they're, they're dealing with um, complex things like uh, uh, 
you know, virtue ethics and you know, historic uh, philosophy and, and all these sorts of things. But then it gets a little more complex. And they keep butting up against these glimpses of common grace. In the second season, for instance, as they're investigating, how, how can you get into the good place? Because the twist is uh, uh, bad people end up in the good place, or so they think, and then they discover, oh, this is actually the bad place. They begin to investigate in the halls of the afterlife, and they discover that no one has been admitted to the good place in 500 years. For 500 years, every person who has died has gone to the bad place. And I'm thinking, there is no one good, no, not one. What have they discovered unwittingly? The doctrine of total depravity. <laughs> that no matter how hard you try, this is the premise, no matter how hard you try, you can't be good enough. That's what they discover. And they find this fellow, um, his name is Doug Forsett, and his picture is framed all over the halls of the afterlife because he's the bestest, goodest person in existence. And they go to visit him. What's the trick? What's the, the secret to being good? And they go to visit Doug Forsett and his, uh, uh, you know, a goodness compound. And they discover he is a miserable person. He is driving himself crazy. He is overrun by anxiety and worry because he is trying to be perfect under the weight of, if I'm not good enough, I don't get to go to the good place. What have they unwittingly run into here? They have unwittingly run into uh, um, the unbearable burden of law apart from the message of grace, the crushing weight of self-righteousness. Trying to be perfect will eventually crush you. But in season three, the characters finally make it to the good place. Spoiler alert. They finally get there, they get to the actual good place, and they discover a problem. It's just okay. Their wildest dreams, their, their, their grandest imaginations, the place of perfection, of rest, of beauty, of bliss, of anything you can think of and instantly appears, this is what this world is, and they become bored by it, and they discover the people who've been living there for hundreds, thousands, millions of years are like mushy-brained zombies living in this world of perfection. One character who, who, who first arrives, he, he finally gets to realize his dream, uh, um, his immediate dream, the wish he's always had, is to ride go-karts with monkeys. And he thinks this is going to be a blast, and he goes and rides the go-karts with monkeys, and later he's reporting back to his friends, and he goes, it, he goes, it was cool for a while. And then, I, yeah, I've done that. So then he imagines hippos on the go-karts. And then he thinks, well, I've done that. And then he's like, how about Draculas with jetpacks? That's what he imagines. That'd be kind of cool. And then he just gets bored of coming up with things. And there's a problem, of course, isn't there? I have two major issues with the good place's conception of the good place of, of heaven. The second I'll tell you about a little bit later. But the first issue I have is, is with this idea that endless perfection will get boring. They assume, and I assume the writers of this sitcom are assuming, that the problem is with endless perfection. They think the problem with heaven, so to speak, is that it's too heavenly. But it's not. Not even in the dumb version of heaven conjured up by the spiritual degenerates of this television show. The real reason they get bored with endless perfection is not because perfection is boring, but because they are. 
Their minds have not been expanded. Their hearts have not been expanded. The people in, in that world who move on to the other world are, are not, um, they're just the best version of their fallen selves. They're not transformed people. They bring even the desires of their flesh into the afterlife. And so one more thing the show unwittingly gets right is that unregenerate people are bored with glory. In fact, everything they're doing is trying to entertain and medicate themselves against the sinking suspicion that they're made for more. This is why whenever I was pastoring and people would come and find some way to complain about my preaching, having so much gospel in it, I resolved that the solution would be even more gospel than before. You know what? I'm going to gospel so much harder now. (laughs) I'll show you. Because the problem is not with grace. The problem is with our capacity for it. And conversion by the gospel is ultimately a conversion to the gospel. We are saved uh, 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 Not by and to ourselves, but by Christ and to Christ. And the result is transformation. We're not perfect, not not yet. That will come in the age to come when all sin is vanquished and all brokenness is vanquished. We're not perfect, but we are changed. We are changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Verse 27, follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This is a result of a new heart. This is why, for instance, um, there's a debate over Romans chapter 7. You remember Romans chapter 7 where Paul is saying, uh, the good things I want to do, I find I can't do. The bad things I know not to do, I find myself doing that. Who's going to rescue me? There's a debate over whether he's describing a regenerate state or an unregenerate state. Is Paul talking about himself before salvation? Perhaps that is up for debate. My inclination is to think, no, I think he's talking about himself as a regenerate person. Now, why would I say that? Because it, it sounds like he's saying, I'm doing things I, I shouldn't do. Well, just the fact that he know, he, his conscience knows and is troubled by the difference indicates something. But there's another line in the passage. It talks about, he says, I delight in the law in my inner being. I do not know unregenerate people who delight in the law in their inner being. I've met a lot of unregenerate people who delight in the law in their outer being to look religious, to look put together, to look righteous. I don't think Paul is describing perfectionism, but but rather just the loathing of iniquity that's described here. Wretched man that I am. I don't just feel guilty. I feel unclean. I I, want to be cleansed. I want to be different. I want this sin. I, I don't just want the consequences of sin removed from me. I want sin out of me. I want to be out of this body of death. Where does this come from? It it can only come from being given a new heart. Unsaved people do not see the beauty of God's holy commands. They only feel the burden of them. Or or they see an opportunity to indulge in self-righteousness, which is just as ugly. But true conversion... True conversion brings the beauty of God to bear in the hearts of those who now fear God. 
Just think of the metaphors. There's all kinds of metaphors the scriptures use for this transformation. The different pictures. They give us just these little pictures, portraits that are being painted. From profane to holy. A heart of stone to a heart of flesh. From darkness to marvelous light. From inglorious to glorious, from stranger to friend, from slavery to freedom, from condemnation to vindication, from wounded to healed, from spiritual poverty to the riches of Christ, from death to life, the new birth, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, being washed white as snow. We could go on and on and on, but all of these metaphors and symbols and these other analogies, they're all just a tapestry that the Bible is bringing to bear on the experience of spiritual transformation. It's demonstrating the multifaceted beauty of conversion. You look at all of that together, just one piece by itself, but all together and you think, oh, this is beautiful. This is art created by God. We have a regular reminder of this, of course, just in our centering image of of the cross. The cross is a place of supreme ugliness. In first century Roman culture, the cross was even a profane thing, an offensive thing. You would not bring up the cross in polite company. The image of the cross is one of torture of the worst form of agony. The the image of the cross was fraught with, with naked shaming, covered in blood, torn apart flesh, fluids, feces. As an icon, it is a testimony to Roman brutality and barbarism. And we turn it into an emblem of silver or gold and put it around our necks. We craft it out of sleek wood or metal and we put it up as a decoration in our home and in our church. Why do we do that? For the same reason the apostles summarized the message of the gospel as the message of the cross. The apostolic shorthand for the gospel, which includes the glorious resurrection, is simply the cross. I've resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Well, Paul, what about the resurrection? You believe in that, right? Of course he does. He's censuring the cross. The cross, which is a scandal and an offense, a stumbling block, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who believe, it's the power of salvation. For those with the eyes to see, the cross is a precious, even beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing for those with spiritual eyes because it's the place of our atonement. It's the place of our redemption. It's the place of salvation. It is the the symbol of the power of our conversion. The cross is beautiful in its design. Conversion is beautiful in its design. Thirdly, conversion is beautiful in its community. Conversion is beautiful in its community. As Jonathan helpfully showed us yesterday, at the fall, we are not just relationally divorced from God. That's the primary disconnect. That's the primary dysfunction in divorce, to be at enmity with God. But we are also relationally disconnected, divorced at enmity with each other. Adam and Eve, not just at enmity with God, but with each other. 
And then when they, even when the commandments come to bear, they, they speak to this divide. I mean, you just think of the, of the Ten Commandments, right? Where the first table speaks to that vertical relationship. Don't have idols, don't have any other God, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And the second table is more about working out the vertical into the horizontal. Don't covet, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Ultimately, the gospel reconciles us to God, but also to others through the building of Christ's church on and through that gospel. Here's the promise articulated in Ezekiel 36. Look in verse 28. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people. Conversion remakes us into a new people. It marks our adoption by God and our adoption into the new humanity of the church. The the church is a family made by the gospel. So the good news comes and it it transforms us from self-centered to others loving. It transforms us from inward to outward. It reconciles us not just to God, but to each other, which is so important to remember in our day when so many Christians are biting and devouring each other constantly. These are family members that we're tearing apart on Twitter. We're aligning ourselves, not with our advocate, but with our accuser when we do this. The accuser of the brethren. What are we to make of those who consistently and persistently treat as enemies their brothers and sisters, whom they ostensibly agree with on primary matters, What is happening? What do we make of the practice of tearing down and attacking and even cursing members of our own family? What should we say about that? For, For those who are unrepentantly treating God's children in ways that the Bible forbids, we could say best case scenario, as Paul once said to Peter, their conduct is not in step with the gospel. Worst case scenario, they are demonstrating that they are unregenerate. Because this is how worldly people believe and behave. Because among the several things that conversion is, it is a conversion from self-righteousness to submission to the church. And the church, believe it or not, hard to believe when you look with a glance, the church, believe it or not, is beautiful. Verse 37, this is what the Lord God says, I will respond to the house of Israel and do this for them. I will multiply them in number like a flock. So the ruined cities will be filled with a flock of people. Just as Jerusalem is filled with a flock of sheep for sacrifice during its appointed festivals, then they will know that I am the Lord. The flock of people multiplied from spiritual Israel and the nations filling the desolate cities. This is how we will know that God is at work in the glory of the gospel going out in discipleship of all peoples. The vision here is echoed in Christ's great commission. It's echoed in Paul's mission to the Gentiles. It's echoed in John's apocalyptic vision of the consummation of the kingdom. The diversity in each of these forecasts of gospel unity is beautiful. Let's just take a look at some selections from John's vision in particular. Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every uh, nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Revelation 19, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. From Revelation chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He'll live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. All of these portraits taken together are culminations of the vision in Ezekiel 36. They depict the people of God made up of every nation as beautiful and living beautifully in the beautiful heavenly city. And according to the word of God, despite our mess, despite our brokenness, despite our sin, the bride of Christ is gorgeous. She is radiant. She is clothed in the brilliant wedding dress of Christ's own righteousness. Even a, a, the nod to the land in uh, verses 33 through 35 is a picture of the restoration of creation that the church is going to inherit in the age to come. When heaven crashes into this world, as beautiful as this world is now, Swiss Alps, Rocky Mountains, Niagara Falls, Angel Falls, the jungles, everything you can think of is just that makes you stagger. Imagine when it's made new. What will an uncursed creation look like? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says, the, glory, uh, the nods of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. He's not just making our souls new. Behold, he is making all things new. And we, his bride, will enjoy the endless age of a heavenly earth together. Together. There's a reason why the church is not just called the bride of Christ, however, but the body of Christ, because fourthly and finally, conversion is beautiful in its conformity to Christ. Conversion is beautiful in its conformity to Christ. The book of Ezekiel begins to take a turn in its later chapters to far-reaching eschatological implications, but beyond, I think, Jerusalem's circumstantial capture and, and ransacking. In chapter 34, for instance, there's a promise of a coming Davidic king, which is a fairly clear prophecy of the Messiah. And the promise is repeated in chapter 37, verse 24, where David himself is said to rule once again over the people like a shepherd king. And then in chapter 40, Ezekiel sees a man whose appearance is like bronze. And this man's appearance is the same as what Ezekiel said about God's appearance in chapter 1. So you have an amplifying vision of a coming man who shares the description of God. Who might that be? And the vision of this 
latter section of the latter chapters of Ezekiel is one of national restoration of the healing of the land. All of things which not only don't take place in the lifespans of Ezekiel's original audience, but have not really taken place yet at our time either. So there's a promise of glory returning to the temple, for instance, in Ezekiel 43 and in Ezekiel 48. In the very last verse of the entire book, we are told that the name of the restored city will be called the Lord is there. Just like that vision of Revelation. He, his dwelling place will be with humanity. The Lord is there is the name of the city. The emphasis appears to be on the eschatological hope of the coming Son of Man, the Messianic King. The vision is a vision of Jesus. Jesus is, in fact, where the whole Bible is going. He's who the whole Bible is about. Conversion is beautiful because it, it conforms us to the image of Christ. Because conversion begins the process by which the Spirit transforms us from people who walk in the flesh to people who walk by faith and are alive in Christ and walk in step with the Spirit of Christ. Conversion is the beginning of the sanctification that makes us more Christ-like. And there's a picture of this even in our passage, I think. Verse 27. I'll place my Spirit within you. This is how you know it's not just being religious or being a moralist, I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. This is a picture of Christ-likeness, not religiosity. How do we know? What's the difference between Christ-likeness and religiosity? It's Christ-likeness because it's driven by God and not by the flesh. Because the religious observance, the, the statute following, the ordinance observing, is, is driven by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. God places his spirit in us and causes us to pursue holiness. Fruit is being born in our lives. Sanctification is progressing. We're being remade into the image of Christ. In the way of Christ-likeness, good works aren't to show ourselves as impressive, but to give glory to our Father in heaven. And we can even see that the aim of this work is not exaltation of people, but magnification of God. Look at the second part of verse 23. The nations will know that I am the Lord. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. That what people might see, in other words, when they look at us, is the glory of Jesus. They see his holiness. It is all about Christ. Conversion is beautiful in its end because it is the remaking of us after the image of the Son of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, it's by beholding the glory of Christ with an unveiled face that we are transformed from one degree of glory into another, into the same likeness, and this comes by the Spirit. What he's saying is the process of sanctification is carried out through beholding somehow the glory of Jesus and the aim of that is that we would become more like Jesus. Beholding Jesus makes us become more like Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's the ball game. Those of you who are pastors, what do you want from your people? You just want them to be better behaviors? I mean, that'd be nice. No, what you want is, to, is, is for them to love Christ and to be more like Christ. Conversion is not simply the religiousizing of people. 
It is a turning to the glory of Jesus. It is a finding of Jesus as beautiful. And this is a spiritual, capital S, spiritual apprehension. We need the eyes of faith that are granted in the new birth by the Holy Spirit to see Jesus as glorious. And when we see him, because a lot of people look at Jesus, to not just see him, but behold him. To behold him. In Christ, we lose our taste for all other options. All other options pale in comparison to his surpassing splendor. This is John Owen in his book, The Glory of Christ. He says, it's by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. It is by faith that we grow to love Christ, he says. So if we desire strong faith, you want strong faith? And powerful love, do you want powerful love? Which give us rest. Who doesn't want rest? Peace, satisfaction, Owen says, we must seek them diligently beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty, I desire to live and to die. On Christ's glory, he says, I would fix all of my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes. And I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid. Impossible for me to enjoy. What's happening? By seeing the glory of Christ, he's losing his taste for all other options. Like Peter in John 6. Where would we go? To whom would we go? Only you have the words of life. George Whitfield says, do you desire one that is beautiful? His eyes are most sparkling. His looks and glances of love are ravishing. His smiles are most delightful and refreshing unto the soul. Christ is the most lovely person of all others in the world. And this is my second problem with the good place. Their heaven is boring, not just because they are boring, but because Christ isn't there. Because Christ isn't there. Because Christ is the, the whole point of everything. He's the whole point of heaven. Imagine it, it, it wasn't just a better version of your fallen self. You really were transformed, and you really got to the good place, and you could have anything you ever wanted. Your favorite things enhanced, enlightened, illuminated, perfected. And even all the loved ones that you hope will be there are there. And you get to do all the things that you wish you had more time to do here, there. And you're actually good at them. Imagine your wildest dreams could come true. And Jesus isn't there. Is it heaven? Even a perfect perfect place where Christ is not present is more hell than heaven. The point of heaven is Jesus. John in his vision says, we won't even need a son because the lamb will be the lamp of the new creation. The culmination of all of our hopes and dreams will be there. Now we just see through a glass dimly, but then the climax of what begins in our conversion will finally be in front of our face. And we'll look him in the eyes. We'll see our Redeemer who lives and stands on the earth. This is what Job says. 
Yet in my flesh I will see God. My eyes will behold him. As Ezekiel tells us in his very last verse, the name of the city will be the Lord is there. The Lord is there. The hope of heaven for the converted soul is not simply bliss, but Christ. He is our blessed hope. Ultimately and centrally, we come to Christ not to get stuff, but to get him. This is the whole point, verse 38. Then they will know I am the Lord. Conversion is beautiful in its conformity. Celebration of culmination in Christ. I don't know where this day finds you. A lot of people I talk to lately are at the end of their rope. It's been a hard few years, and life is hard outside of the circumstances of the last few years. I don't know if you feel beaten down, broken down, burnt over, hollowed out, scraped from the insides. But I know that God is real, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is risen, and that he always lives to intercede for those who trust in him. You may be in the, the deepest pit. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. This is the aim of it, conversion, that Jesus would be magnified in us no matter what, because he truly is the most glorious beauty. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for what you have done for us, but deeper and greater than that, for who you are in your splendor, perfectly holy, almighty, worthy of all of our efforts, all of our praise, and more and beyond. Help us to find the gospel as fascinating as the angels do to stare into it because it brings to us the glory of your son, which is magnificent. And Father, I just briefly pray here for every burdened soul in this room. There may be some unconverted, Father. Certainly don't want to presume, given our setting, that every heart in this place has trusted in your son. I pray your spirit even now would be moving them from darkness into light, from death into life. For every burdened Saint in this room, Father, I pray that you would strengthen them by your grace. Help us to know more and more that your Son is with us and for us, and that he is coming again soon. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.